BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Uh, We're going to pick up the bar hearings in just a few minutes. The attorney general, who has, in my opinion, for at least the third time, lied to the American people into Congress under oath this morning. I mean, just this morning. And when Sheldon Whitehouse got him actually stuttering, I mean, it was a beautiful thing to behold. It was just an amazing Amazing thing. Oh, so here, Amy Klobuchar is asking questions. Let's check this out. Under oath, you had to go out of your way not to at least mention the fact that he had sent you this letter, but you didn't mention it. And then finally, I would say that we must hear from Director Mueller because in response to some of my colleagues' questions, you have said that you didn't know what he meant or why he said it, and I believe we need to hear from him. So I want to first start with Russia. Special Counsel Mueller's report found that the Russian government interfered in the 2016 presidential election in a sweeping and systematic fashion. Later, Director Ray has informed us that 2018 was a dress rehearsal for the big show in 2020. Director Coates, the president's intelligence advisor, has told us that the Russians are getting bolder. Yet for the last two years, Senator Langford and I, on a bipartisan bill with support from the ranking and the head of the Intelligence Committee, have been trying to get the Secure Elections Act passed. This would require backup paper ballots. If anyone gets federal funding for an election, it would require audits, and it would require better cooperation. Yet, the White House, just as we were on the verge of getting a markup in the Rules Committee, getting it to the floor where I think we would get the vast majority of senators, the White House made calls to stop this. Were you aware of that? No. Okay, well, that happened. So what I would like to know from you as our nation's chief law enforcement officer, if you will work with Senator Langford and I to get this bill done, because otherwise we are not going to have any clout to get backup paper ballots if something goes wrong in this election. Well, I will work with you to enhance the security of our election, and I'll take a look at at what you're proposing. I'm not familiar with it. Okay, well, it is the bipartisan bill. It has Senator Burr and Senator Warner. Its support from Senator Graham was on the bill. Senator Harris is on the bill. And the leads are Senator Langford and myself. And it had significant support in the House as well. Uh, The GRU, the Russian Military Intelligence Agency, targeted the U.S. state and local agencies along with private firms that are responsible for electronic polling and voter registration. The GRU accessed voter information and installed malware. 
on a voting technology company's network. I understand the FBI will brief U.S. Senator Rick Scott and Florida Governor DeSantis on efforts by Russian hackers to gain access to Florida election data. Will you commit to have the FBI provide a briefing to all senators on this? Um, I, I just on the Florida situation? On the entire Russia situation. Sure. Including the Florida situation. Sure. Okay, that will be helpful. Again, uh, Senator Lankford and I are trying to get our bill passed, and I think if everyone hears about this, it may help. Also, according to the report, the IRA purchased over 3,500 ads on Facebook to undermine our democracy, as the chairman has pointed out. Contrary to what we heard from a high-ranking official at the White House, this was not just a few Facebook ads. I am pleased that Chairman Graham has agreed to be the lead Republican on the Honest Ads Act that I introduced last year with Senator McCain. And will you help us to try at least to change our election laws so that we can show where the money is coming from and who's paying for these ads so that people have access to these ads? That's interesting. Concept, Two pieces yes. of legislation that she's okay, introduced in a row. Thank you. Is this we a campaign? Now let's go to something I noted in your opening. You talked about how the two major concerns at your nomination hearing were about the report and about making the report public. There was a third concern, and it was something I raised, and that was your views on obstruction. I asked you if a president or any person convincing a witness to change testimony would be obstruction of justice, and you said yes. The report found that Michael Cohen's testimony to the House before it, that the president repeatedly implied that Cohen's family members had committed crimes. Do you consider that evidence to be an attempt to convince a witness to change testimony? No. I don't think that that uh, could, could pass muster. Those public statements he was making uh, could pass muster as subordination of perjury. But this is a man in the highest office, in the most powerful job in our country, and he is basically, I'm trying to think how someone would react, any of my colleagues here, if the President of the United States is implying, getting out there that your family members have committed a crime. So you don't consider that any attempt to change testimony? Well, you, you, have, you have two different things. You have the question of whether there's, it's an obstructive act and then also whether or not it is a corrupt intent. I don't think general public statements like that have, okay. Well, our, we could show that they would have sufficiently probable effect to, to constitute... Okay, well, then let's go to some private uh, statements. The report found that the president's personal counsel told Paul Manafort that he would be, quote, taken care of. This is in volume two, page 123 to 24. That you don't consider obstruction of justice. No, not standing alone, both for this, on, the, on both the same uh, reasons. And Remember? I think that is my point here. What? You look at the totality of the evidence. That's what I learned when I was in law school. You look at the totality of the evidence in the pattern here. Look at this. The report found that the president's personal counsel told Michael Cohen that if he stayed on message about the Trump Tower Moscow project, the president had his back. That's volume two, page 140. Right, but I think the, the counsel acknowledged that it's unclear whether he was reflecting uh, the president's uh, statements on that. Okay. The report found that after Manafort was convicted, the president himself called him a brave man for refusing to break. Yes. Oh. 
And that is not, and that is not uh, obstruction because the president's state, the evidence, I think what the president's lawyers would say if this uh, were ever actually joined, is that the president's statements about flipping are quite clear and express and, and uniformly the same, which is by flipping, he meant succumbing to pressure on unrelated cases to lie and compose mm -hmm. in order to get lenient treatment on I other cases. That is not... Uh, so discouraging flipping in that sense is not obstruction. Okay. Well, look at the pattern here. The, the report found that after Cohen's residence and office were searched by the FBI, the president told Cohen to hang in there and stay strong. The report found that after National Security Advisor Michael Flynn resigned, the president made public positive comments about him, and then when he cooperated, he changed his tune. During your confirmation hearing, I asked you whether a president deliberately impairing the integrity or availability of evidence would be obstruction. And you responded, yes. And this is a different take on Senator Feinstein's question. Would causing McGahn, the White House counsel, to create a false record when McGahn, he told him to deny reports, right? He tells McGahn, deny reports that the president ordered him to have the counsel fired. If you don't see that as obstruction and directing him to change testimony, do you think that would create a false record to impair the integrity of evidence? This is extraordinary. Amy Klobuchar is giving uh, Bill Barr an absolute ass-kicking back to it. ...to establish any of the three elements there. First, uh, it's, it's not sufficient to show uh, a obstructive uh, act uh, because it is unclear whether the president uh, knew that to be false. In fact, the president's focus on the fact that I never told you to fire McGahn. Did I ever say fire? I never told you to fire McGahn. McGahn's... Uh, McGahn's and I'm getting at something. It's about impairing the integrity of the evidence. I just see it as different. This is... Well, the, the uh, second I, thing, there's no... It's hard to establish the nexus to the proceeding because he already had testified to the, uh, to the special counsel. He'd given his evidence. Mm -hmm. As the report itself says, there is evidence that the president actually thought and believed that the Times article was wrong. That's evidence on the president's side of the ledger, that he actually thought it was wrong and was asking for its correction. It is also possible, the report says, that the president's intent was directed at, at the uh, publicity and the press. The government has to prove things beyond a reasonable doubt, and as the report shows, there's, there's ample uh, evidence on the other side of the ledger that would present, prevent the government from establishing that. Okay, again, I look at the totality of the evidence, and when you look at it, it is a pattern, and that is different than having one incident. Thank, Thank you. you, Mr. Chairman. Yes, ma'am. Uh, Senator Sass. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, General Barr, I'd like to go back ben to... Ben Sass uh, is the Republican senators coming in to ask questions, so uh, we're going to take a break here. We'll be right back. Stick around. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're reading the Mueller report. This is from page four. It's titled Executive Summary to Volume One, Russian Social Media Campaign. The Internet Research Agency carried out the earliest Russian interference operations identified by the investigation, a social media campaign designed to provoke and amplify political and social discord in the United States. The IRA was based in St. Petersburg, Russia, and received funding from Russian oligarch Yevgeny Progishin 
and companies he controlled. Progishin is widely reported to have ties to Russian President Vladimir Putin, large chunk of unredacted stuff. In mid-2014, the IRA sent employees to the United States on an intelligence gathering mission with instructions redacted. The IRA later used social media accounts and interest groups to sow discord in the U.S. political system through what it termed, quote, information warfare, end quote. The campaign evolved from a generalized program designed in 2014 and 2015 to undermine the U.S. electoral system to a targeted operation that by early 2016 favored candidate Trump and disparaged candidate Clinton. The IRA's operation also included the purchase of political advertisements on social media in the names of U.S. persons and entities, as well as the staging of political rallies inside the United States. To organize those rallies, IRA employees posed as U.S. grassroots entities and persons and made contact with Trump supporters and Trump campaign officials in the United States. The investigation did not identify evidence that any U.S. persons conspired or coordinated with the IRA. Section 2 of this report details the office's investigation of the Russian social media campaign. Russian hacking operations. At the same time that the IRA began to focus on supporting candidate Trump in early 2016, the Russian government employed a second form of interference, cyber intrusions, hacking, and release of hacked materials damaging to the Clinton campaign. The Russian intelligence service, known as the Main Intelligence Directorate of the General Staff of the Russian Army, GRU, carried out these operations. In March 2016, the GRU began hacking the email accounts of Clinton campaign volunteers and employees, including campaign chairman John Podesta. In April 2016, the GRU hacked the computer networks of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC, and the Democratic National Committee, the DNC. The GRU stole hundreds of thousands of documents from the compromised email accounts and networks. Around the time that the DNC announced in mid-June 2016 the Russian government's role in hacking its network, the GRU began disseminating stolen materials through fictitious online personas, DC leaks, and Guccifer 2.0. The GRU later released additional materials through the organization WikiLeaks. The presidential campaign of Donald J. Trump, Trump campaign or campaign, showed interest in WikiLeaks releases of documents and welcomed their potential to damage candidate Clinton. Beginning in June 2016, redacted, forecast to senior campaign officials that WikiLeaks would release information damaging to candidate Clinton. WikiLeaks' first release came in July 2016. Around the same time, candidate Trump announced that he hoped Russia would recover emails described as missing from a private server used by Clinton when she was Secretary of State. Parenthesis. He later said he was speaking sarcastically. Close parenthesis. Redacted. WikiLeaks began releasing Podesta's stolen emails on October 7, 2016, less than one hour after a U.S. media outlet released video considered damaging to candidate Trump. Section 3 of this report details the office's investigation into the Russian hacking operations, as well as other efforts by Trump campaign supporters to obtain Clinton-related emails. Russian contacts with the campaign. The social media campaign and the GRU hacking operations coincided with a series of contacts between Trump campaign officials and individuals with ties to the Russian government. The office investigated whether, this is Mueller's office when he says the office, the office investigated whether those contacts reflected or resulted in the campaign, that's the Trump campaign, conspiring or coordinating with Russia in its election interference activities.
Although the investigation established that the Russian government perceived it would benefit from a Trump presidency and worked to secure that outcome, and that the campaign expected that it would benefit electorally from information stolen and released through Russian efforts, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired or coordinated with the Russian government in its election interference activities. The Russian contacts consisted of business connections, offers of assistance to the campaign, invitations for candidate Trump and Putin to meet in person, invitations for campaign officials and representatives of the Russian government to meet, and policy positions seeking improved U.S.-Russian relations. Section 4 of this report details the contacts between Russia and the Trump campaign during the campaign and transition periods, the most salient of which are summarized below in chronological order. 2015. Some of the earliest contacts were made in connection with the Trump Organization real estate project in Russia known as Trump Tower Moscow. Candidate Trump signed a letter of intent for Trump Tower Moscow by November 2015, and in January 2016, Trump Organization Executive Michael Cohen emailed and spoke about the project with the Office of Russian Government Press Secretary Dmitry Peskov. The Trump Organization pursued the project through at least June 2016, including by considering travel to Russia by Cohen and candidate Trump. It's the Mueller Report. Does your current office chair support you? I mean, if you're lucky, maybe it goes up and down, but can you sit in it for hours before it becomes uncomfortable? You know, I, I broke my back skydiving back when I was 20 years old, and finding a good chair has been a lifelong struggle. The X chair has this dynamic variable lumbar support. They call it DVL. The X chair's DVL was designed to adjust to you, and every other part of the chair can be custom adjusted to fit you. That's why the X chair is equally supportive, whether you're 5'2 at 110 or 6'4 at 250. And now with the introduction of the X basic model, there's an X chair for every body type and every budget. Take advantage of X-Chair's new financing option and pay as little as 30 bucks a month. Take your comfort and productivity to the next level for less than the cost of a daily cup of coffee. X-Chair's on sale now for $100 off. Just go to xchairtom.com or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair comes with a 30-day, no questions asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. Go to xchairtom.com now and use the code XWHEELS and you'll receive a free set of the new X-Wheels with your chair xchairtom.com You're listening to Tom Hartman There's a bunch of things that I wanted to share with you today that I think are really important. We condemned China for the intensity of their surveillance state. They literally know where everybody is all the time, you know, pretty much all the time. A zillion cameras, face recognition technology. They're actually starting to export it all over the world, including to the United States. But most Americans don't realize that Trump's ICE, the Immigration Service, has hired private companies to surveil people who were protesting Trump's immigration policies. Seriously, if you don't like the idea of tearing children from their parents and you talked about it on Facebook, you're in their database. If you showed up at a public protest, you're in their database. If you even posted a comment about it on any old random website that's out there in the public, you're on their database. ICE now not only has your name, but all your personal information, your Facebook history. They not only know you, they know your friends and your relatives. They know how you spend your spare time. They know what you do for a living. They know who you are. They know where you are. And most importantly, they know that you don't agree with their policies. And they have put that flag in their files. This is how really terrible things begin in authoritarian regimes. 
And this is going on right now. This uh, Gabe Ortiz over at Daily Co is writing about this. Government documents obtained by Freedom of Information Act show that the Trump administration was using a private cybersecurity company to monitor the hundreds of nationwide protests last year organized by Americans outraged over its family separation policy. There were more than 600 protests in June of last year around the country as public horror was, we were watching children being torn from their parents and being locked up in cages and in some cases fairly small cages and very cold cages. A couple of these children died and they hired this company called Looking Glass, which shared that information with ICE, including the Facebook event IDs, the logistics such as time and location, all that kind of stuff. These are the families belong together rallies. They were attended by hundreds of thousands of Americans. They stretched across all 50 states. Again, quoting from Gabe Ortiz, the documents continue to confirm that officials have taken action to surveil and punish critics of the administration's policy. There's an ICE official who told an immigrants' rights activist, I'm not going to name their names, but it's in the report here. Gene from me to you, you don't want to make matters worse by saying things. In other words, shut up, ICE telling an activist. Information for one surveilled American, an attorney with immigrant rights advocacy group Al Otrolado, even included, quote, specific details about the car she drives, her mother's name, and her work and travel history. The immigration views voices of dissent as a threat to its disinformation campaign. Yeah, says Gabe, and spot on. I mean, this is insane. This administration's turning us into a surveillance state. And at the same time, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are saying, oh, we'll work with this administration because it's best for the country. And yeah, it's best for the country. A good infrastructure project absolutely would be. It would put a million people to work. It would help fix the infrastructure in America, especially if it starts early next year. It would be just in time for Trump's reelection. I am not thrilled. Count me among those who is not excited about this, frankly. Am I being unpatriotic? by saying that I don't think that the Democrats should be working with Donald Trump on anything, even if it's the best thing for the country, we can wait 18 months. I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell said we can wait, you know, a year to have hearings for the Supreme Court. It's not like the Republicans have ever, literally ever done something that's in the best interest of the country. Meanwhile, this is just all over the place. Gabriel Debonetti, wrote this piece for New York Magazine, nymag.com. The headline is, Wall Street Democrats are absolutely freaking out about their 2020 candidates. Now, we're not talking about, you know, people all across the United States who, you know, have a little bit of money in a 401k or something like that, which, by the way, is really not even half of us. It's about 20% of us have anything consequential in a 401k. But what they're talking about are wealthy people who work on Wall Street. One night in early April writes Gabriel, roughly 20 of the Democratic Party's highest profile donors in the financial industry sat down over dinner to discuss how exactly they were feeling about the 2020 presidential race. This was convened by Steve Ratner, who's often on TV, and Blair Efron. These are, you know, multimillionaire investor guys. One of the bankers who was there says, there's tremendous fear the article notes the candidates who had long cultivated relationships with Wall Street, such as Cory Booker and Kirsten Gillibrand, were struggling to gain traction and had grown more hostile to finance, as the party has. 
Nearly everyone else in the field, the financiers felt, was being pulled leftward by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. One of the bankers explained to the writer, she, Elizabeth Warren, would torture them. Warren strikes fear in their hearts. They write, there are a few options, none perfect. Beto O'Rourke was essentially a centrist-shaped blank slate. Pete Buttigieg was a McKinsey alumni, and he talked like a Silicon Valley executive or Obama treasury official. In other words, they liked him. But no one yet took him seriously. Kamala Harris was the favorite of many in the room. In 2012, as California's attorney general, she passed on prosecuting One West and its CEO, Stephen Mnuchin. In this cycle, she's been the Democrat perhaps most active in seeking Wall Street money. She recently headlined a fundraiser hosted by Lion Tree CEO Araya Burkhoff, and BlackRock's Michael Pyle is advising her on economics. So this is Wall Street freaking out, and it's being portrayed in the media as this is an epic battle between capitalism and socialism. <laughs> I've heard this meme several times now. It's not. There is literally not a single, even Bernie Sanders, not a single person who is advocating real socialism. What they're advocating is that socialist policies that we already have, like public roads and bridges and water systems and, and the fire department, public schools, Social Security, Medicare, these are all socialist programs, that those programs be strengthened and that we have a tax system that's more in alignment with what we had prior to the Reagan administration. All they're talking about, basically, even Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders is, at the beginning anyway, rolling back Reaganism, and then if they want to take it a next step, it would just be building on FDR's agenda, period, full stop. But they're being portrayed in the media as, you know, wild-eyed, crazy socialists. Which brings me to my socialist rant. Ray Dalio, hedge fund manager, earned $2 billion last year. Jim Simons of Renaissance Technologies, $1.5 billion. Ken Griffin of Citadel, $870 million. These guys are all in the banking business, basically, the investment business. And the question is, how much is too much? It says, uh, even if Mr. Dalio took home $500 million, the rest of his income, that's, you know, a billion and a half, could pay 10,000 families $150,000 each. Which raises the question, how much is too much? How much is too much income in a democracy? At what point does people taking out a billion or $2 billion a year from a company and sticking it in their own pockets or their offshore checking accounts or whatever, at what point does that become actually destructive to a democracy? It's a clear and clarion signal of massive inequality in our society. We know that. And we know that inequality has huge social consequences. So there's that. And speaking of inequality, Venezuela, their equivalent of the Speaker of the House, he has now called for an open revolution against the elected government of Venezuela. And the Trump administration is backing him up. He did not run for president. And he was not elected president. But, you know, the Trump administration wants to make him president. So we'll see how this shakes out, too. Keep an eye on all these things. Anyhow, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. Do you think that I'm being a, um, an unpatriotic partisan? Or am I right? Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Omar, what's up? Tom, I agree with you 100% that they should not work with Trump at all because they should obstruct just like they did during the Obama. Nancy Pelosi needs to come out and say that her goal is to make Trump one-term president. She needs to have a press conference and say that. 
Yeah. And the thing is that Trump does not have his interest for this country at all. Anything that he does, he does not have his best interest in the country. And it's really very upsetting to see him on the sidelines. Schumer's been hiding. You know, Nancy Pelosi asked us to give her the gavel. We gave her the gavel. And I feel like she's letting us down by standing out there and saying that she's not going to impeach Trump. That is absolutely ridiculous. And I can't believe that. And the problem is that out of all these candidates, the only candidate that has policy explained very well is Elizabeth Warren. She has a very good policy that she understands, that she explains. She's not mumbling. She comes out and tells you exactly what she's going to do. And nobody paying attention to her. Yeah. Uh, excellent points all, Omar. Thank you very much. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, do you think I'm crazy? No. In fact, I agree 100 percent with everything you're saying, Tom. You are spot on today, because let me tell you something. When Hitler took over Europe, he installed collaborationist governments in places like Vichy, France, and then you had the Quisling government in Norway, which is now basically a slur for basically anybody a traitor to their country. Right. Quisling and, in Europe is like saying Benedict Arnold in the United States. Yeah. And, and there's other people like that as well. It wasn't just Quisling. Yeah. There was just a whole bunch of collaborationists. But I feel that we shouldn't be giving Trump anything. Let's think about this for a second. For the good of the nation, we shouldn't give Trump any kind of infrastructure to your period. You know why? Because for the good of the nation, getting Trump out of there is for the good of the nation. That's my take on this, Jared. It sounds totally partisan, but, you know, I think this is a trap. And I think there was a Washington Post piece I remember from a year or so ago that said, you know, Democrats don't walk into Trump's infrastructure trap. And this is exactly what just happened. I mean, it's just like, there's the cliff. Oh, yeah, we'll walk right over that. You know, it's like, really? It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's just like in Venezuela, too. You have this Juan Guaido guy. He is a fascist. Let yeah. us try to get something straight here. These people, Trump, Juan Guaido, all these other people. Pence. Pence. Yeah, it's all the same crap, as far as I'm concerned. They're all fascists. Okay. Yes. And let me tell you something. In Venezuela, you better be on your knees supporting Maduro. Because let me tell you something. If Juan Guaido gets in, all you black and brown people, guess what? There's going to be ethnic genocide against you. The white minority is going to bring a reign of terror on you, the likes of which you can't see. And Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are supporting a racist coup. Let us try to get something straight here. A racist coup that is engaged in ethnic genocide. Yeah, Correct. and just for people who don't know what you're talking about, the current government, which was popularly elected, democratically elected, the Maduro government, yeah. he himself is brown. I believe it's... Afro-Latino. Yeah. And so are the vast majority of the people in his government, in his cabinet, are brown people, essentially. Juan Guaido is white, and the vast majority of the people in his cabinet, his shadow cabinet that he will bring in as the government, are white. And, you know, white people are the minority in Venezuela, but they're also the ones who control most of the wealth in Venezuela, which is something that you see all over, uh, frankly, all over the world. And I think we're on the wrong side of history with that one, too. Jared, I, I need to move along, but thank you for the call.
I've recently discovered the powerful health benefits of CBD oil. Louise and I have been using New Leaf Naturals CBD oil for several months now, and we love it. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic and has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. The brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals, N-U Leaf. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States, and the only ing ingredient is hemp. So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-LeafNaturals.com. Save 30% off and receive free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, Go to New Leaf, N-U-L-E-A-F, N-U-LeafNaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, N-U-Leaf, NewLeafNaturals.com, and use that code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 30% off. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Pat in Seattle. Hey, Pat, what's up? Yes, this is the first time I've called in, and I'll try to be real short and clear. I was just shocked to hear that Pelosi and Schumer had gone to Trump to work together on an uh, infrastructure package. I just see this as normalizing what's really crazy. Yeah. Because shouldn't they actually be supporting the House to begin the articles of impeachment? Because really, the focus needs to be on the Mueller report, getting that televised across America. The public can really see what is in there and find out what the truth is and have it televised across the country. Why would you go and propose this? I mean, it's like, yeah. it doesn't make sense. And then the other thing I was just going to ask about this also, is even the infrastructure to start working on that right now? When the information you just read about how ICE is actually gathering information on people who protested, and my thought was, you know, we've been hearing so many predictions from Wolf and other really smart economists saying that the debt right now is bigger than the debt that it was in 08, 09. Sure. And to start the infrastructure project, when it's not even feasible economically until we make some changes with, you know, the tax code and we, where we're not supporting corporations. And if I could just address what you just said before yeah. I forget. Uh -huh. The proposal that the Republicans are peddling, which is the, the devil's in the details, obviously, but is that the infrastructure package would not be paid for so much by government as by private investors, and it would involve a privatization of the commons. Yes, we're going to get new roads oh. and bridges, uh, and they're going to have tolls on them. And the money's going to oh go to some God. private corporation. Well, you know, oh. I don't know if that's exactly what Pelosi and Schumer agreed to, but a year ago, that's what Trump and the Trump administration was proposing. So we'll see. Yeah, even more so than no reason to even begin a dialogue about that. Right. What they need to be focusing on is getting the Mueller report televised and by beginning the articles. Yeah. So thank you. Thank okay. You so much. Thank you, Pat. I do agree. And I'm, I mean, Barack Obama tried for eight years to get an infrastructure bill passed. And he got shot down at every turn by the Republicans. Yesterday, I got an email from Donald Trump asking me for more money. I get one about every other day. And it said that the Democrats want open border policies, which is another lie. The Washington Post has been documenting Trump's lies for some time now. And the most recent lie, in fact, the headline is lie number 10,000 is really a whopper. 
During an interview at Fox News on Sunday, Mr. Trump, this is by the editorial board, Mr. Trump suggested that his heartless policy had continued practices in place under Barack Obama and George W. Bush administrations, among others. In contrast to his predecessors, Mr. Trump said, we've been on a humane basis. We go out and stop the separations. This is an absolute total lie. Then they call it a lie. And they say it was an act of singular cruelty by an administration that has not shied away from demonstrating malice toward immigrants. So here we have Donald Trump lying about what the Obama administration did with regard to family separation, lying about what Democrats are supporting or not supporting with regard to infanticide, lying about Democrats supporting open borders. And then you have the leadership of the Democrats in the House and the Senate, Pelosi and Schumer, go to the White House and say, Mr. President, we'd like to cut a deal with you that's going to make you look really good for the election in 2020 and help you get reelected. And I'm sitting here saying, you know, I think that's a mistake. We haven't had any kind of major infrastructure. I mean, major. We're talking, you know, like over a trillion dollars or even over, you know, a couple hundred billion. We haven't seen anything like that, frankly, since before Reagan. Reagan was the one, you know, small government, low taxes, right? That's the Republican mantra. Well, small government means you don't get infrastructure. You don't pay for infrastructure. Donald Trump obviously does not believe in that philosophy, and, and probably he's going to get blowback from the hardcore right-wingers for going along with Pelosi and Schumer. But I am guessing that the right-wing talk show hosts, that the Rush Limbaugh's and the Sean Hannity's of the world are going to say, see, this shows you that Donald Trump can get things done. He can reach across the aisle and work with people. You should reelect him. Listen to these fine things that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer had to say about the great plan that they hatched with the president. And I mean, I'm not understanding this. To help Trump become the hero, to literally create millions of jobs, which is what an infrastructure program will do, and, you know, improve the quality of people's lives, which is what, an, and, you know, there's no more potholes in the roads, right? Bridges are safer. Those are all good things. And we have been fighting for those things for 40 years since Reagan became president. But to do them right now, I mean, if the legislation passes over the next, say, six or eight weeks and gets signed by the president, you're going to see construction begin next spring. Because, you know, you got to figure out what you're going to build and where you're going to build it. And you got to have plans and all that kind of stuff. You're going to see construction build start next spring, just in time for next fall's election. As the jobs start rippling across the country. How is this a good thing? Can't we wait, you know, 18 months until there's a Democrat in the White House and the Democrats control the Senate? See, I think that putting a Democrat in the White House and having the Democrats control the Senate, what they're doing is reducing the probability of that happening. Welcome back. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsfortheOldGoat.com and Loving What You Do, a new book by Ellen Ratner. On the line with us is the chief foreign correspondent for Talk Media News, Luke Vargas, based out of New York. Luke also does a two-minute podcast every day. Luke Pence and Pompeo have come right out and said, yes, we are supporting a guy who was not elected to be president, uh, in fact, didn't even run to be president of Venezuela, to be the president of Venezuela, even though he's just the Speaker of the House. We are supporting him, and we are supporting basically a coup against an elected government. Whatever you think of Maduro, this seems to me like the wrong thing for a democracy to be doing. How is this all playing out, Luke? 
Yeah, I would say, for the record, the accompanying phrase or justification that you're hearing from U.S. officials here is they're leaning pretty heavily on the, you know, 50-plus countries recognize this guy. But pointing out that number is mostly holding, but you have seen countries like Germany, which is a pretty important bellwether here, sort of renege their support for Guaido in the past few weeks. Because if you were sort of going along with the narrative that the U.S. wanted you to go along with, he was sort of claiming power based on an old, unedited constitution, which does prescribe for an interim president to take over in the absence of a legitimate president for, I think, 30 days. And that mm-hmm. ticked by. So that was sort of legitimate to be here in early February or March saying, you know, in a void of, you know, honest constitutional leadership, we're going with Guaido. Even that now has passed. And so we are in a sort of extra constitutional period. And so I think that's a claim you need to take with a big grain of salt. So what's actually happening? There's a video of Guaido uploaded from a Venezuelan military base in the capital, Caracas. There's not a lot of people around him, but one of the people who is there is really important. His name is Leopoldo Lopez. He's another former opposition figure who had been under house arrest for some time and has evidently been freed by people who are loyal to Guaido. So that's meaningful because it brings another figure who had been a rallying point in past attempts to try and bring down Maduro sort of back into the picture. And then a number of soldiers and Guaido, who up until now has sort of pushed Venezuelan military soldiers to look at the bigger picture and sort of make a decision, wink, wink, about whether you stay in the military or not, always tried to be a degree away from outright calling for a military uprising, decided to cross that threshold. What we've learned from the Venezuelan journalist Luz Reyes, she says that this has been a plan to try and overthrow Maduro that had been in the works for the last few days or weeks. It enjoyed the support of senior members of the Venezuelan military, but it was not ready to go. And that the reason this is happening and perhaps not in the best circumstances for Guaido, because it doesn't look like he really has overwhelming force here, is that there had been an order that went out to arrest Guaido and that at the moment of arrest, Guaido or some you know people around him persuade the people arresting him to not do it. And at that, and they decided, well, if we're going to go this far, we might as well just unveil the whole plan, whether it's ready or not. And so that's wow. the best sort of explanation I've heard for what we're seeing right now. But we're getting limited information, though. There is street violence in the streets of Caracas. Too early to tell ultimately how it's going to turn out. And I understand it. I haven't confirmed this report, but I've heard that at the Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C., there were pro-Maduro protesters who showed up and a group of white supremacists who are in support of Guaido because the Guaido government is almost entirely white, even though whites are a minority in Venezuela, and the Maduro government is almost entirely brown. A group of white supremacists have sent out the call, show up at the Venezuelan embassy in D.C. that there might be, we might even have violence here in the United States. Well, I hope that's not the case. It seems something I should look into. I guess I'll just leave it by saying that the one thing we need to remember about Venezuela, which I think makes it a very difficult place for an uprising of this sort, is the cleverness with which Maduro has structured his military hierarchy, uniquely so. And it's almost the inverse of what we saw in Egypt during the Arab Spring, where there was actually a very small military command around Hosni Mubarak. And thus, when the decision was made that using force, carrying out an order from the president for the military to use force against civilians was illegitimate. It really only took a few people who could basically watch their own backs mm. to decide it was time to, you know, tip it against the leader. 
In Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro has not only, I think very wisely, integrated his security services with foreign spies from Cuba. He has Russian guards around him who are double-checking everything. I mean, hmm. he gets everyone to watch each other, and he has a very, very large military hierarchy. And if you have a 1,000 people who are all reliant on their paycheck every month in those leadership positions, the numbers are stacked against someone who wants to try and move the entire majority, let's say, of that military command against the president without being caught. It's really difficult. It's not surprising to hear this one report that this plan had been in the works but was not yet ready. It's very difficult to know when you could ever be ready. You're always at such a high risk of having a, a plot like this uncovered in Venezuela. I'm surprised it got this far, but and then, I guess the story's not yet written. Yeah, and then you've got a bunch of people who have nakedly, openly committed treason, basically, is how you know it would be played out if they lose, if they don't succeed in overthrowing Maduro. Right. Luke Vargas, Talk Media News. Thank you, Luke. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Yep. Great talking with you. Oh, geez. Uh, Kamala Harris is going to be uh, interviewing uh, Mr. Barr next. Uh, Stick around. We'll catch as much of this as we can on the other side of the break. If you're like me, then safeguarding your money through market downturns is a clear priority. And frankly, we've seen enough market volatility to make any investor nervous. For people like us who think outside the box and read between the lines, it's becoming even more clear that the insider secret of accumulating physical gold is becoming a lot less of a secret and more of a trend. According to the World Gold Council, in 2018 alone, central bank gold purchases increased by over 74%. The bottom line is that we are starting to see the cracks forming in our economy. And the faster you take action, the better your opportunity. There's only one company I personally recommend in this industry, and that's the expert strategists at ITM Trading. They specialize in wealth protection and opportunity positioning. Both, as you know, are imperative in our current economic climate. Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold Ask for their free gold protection guide and hedge your bets like the top 1% do. Call one own gold That's one owngold one own gold This um, is in your the March Tom 24th Martin summary, program. you wrote that quote after reviewing the special counsel's final report. But I will say that no one. Sir, I'm, not, I'm asking a question. In your March 24th summary, you wrote that quote after reviewing the special counsel's final report, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein and I have concluded that the evidence is not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. Now, the special counsel's investigation produced a great deal of evidence. Um, I'm led to believe it included witnesses' notes and emails, witnesses' congressional testimony, witnesses' interviews, um, which were summarized in the FBI 302 forms, former FBI Director Comey's memos, and the president's public statements. My question is, in reaching your conclusion, did you personally review all of the underlying evidence? Uh, no, we took... And accept, did, 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 we accepted did Mr. Rosenstein? No, we accepted the statements in the report as the factual record. We did not go underneath it to see whether or not they were accurate. We accepted it as accurate. And made our, so you made our, accepted the report as the evidence? Yes. You did not question or look at the underlying evidence that supports the conclusions in the report? No. Did uh, Mr. Rosenstein review the evidence? that underlines and supports the conclusions in the report, to your knowledge? Not to my knowledge. We accepted the statements in the report did and anyone the characterization in your, of the evidence is true. Did anyone in your executive office review the evidence supporting 
the report? No. No. Yet you represented to the American public that the evidence was not, quote, sufficient to support an obstruction of justice the evidence offense. Present, the evidence presented in the report. This is, not a, this is not a mysterious process. In the Department of Justice, we have pros memos and declination memos every day coming up. And we don't go and look at the underlying evidence. We Sir, take, would you support the characterization of the evidence as true? As the Attorney General of the United States, you run the United States Department of Justice. If in any U.S. Attorney's Office around the country, the head of that office, when being asked to make a critical decision, about, in this case, the person who holds the highest office in the land, and whether or not that person committed a crime, would you accept them recommending a charging decision to you if they had not reviewed the evidence? Well, that's a question for Bob Mueller. He's the U.S. attorney. He's the one who presents the report. But it was you who made the charging decision, sir. What, what? You made the decision not to charge the president. No, in a Pross memo and in a declination memo, you said it was your baby. What did you mean by that? It was my, it was my baby to, to let to decide whether or not to disclose it to the public. And whose decision and we, was and, it? Who's, who had the power to make the decision about whether or not the evidence was sufficient to make a determination of whether there had been an obstruction of justice? Prosecution memos go up to the supervisor. In this case, it was the, you know, the attorney general and the deputy attorney general who, who decide on the final decision. And that is based on the memo as presented by the U.S. Attorney's Office. I think you've I've made seen, it clear that of, you've not looked I've at the evidence. We can move on. I think it, you've made it clear, sir, that you've not looked at the evidence, and we can day. move on. Will you agree to consult career DOJ ethics officials about whether your recusal from the 14 investigations that have been discussed by my colleagues is necessary? Uh, I, I don't see any basis for it. I already consulted with them and... and you have consulted with them about the 14 other investigations? About the, uh, about the uh, Mueller case. Have you consulted with the career DOJ ethics officials about the appropriateness of you being involved or recusing yourself well, what, from the 14 other investigations that have been referred basis? out? On what basis? Conflict of interest. Clear conflict What's of interest. Conflict? What's my conflict of interest? I think the American public has seen quite well that you are biased in this situation and you've not been objective. And that would arguably be the conflict. Well, you know, I haven't been the only decision maker here. Now, let's take the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, who was approved by this Senate, 94 to 6, with specific discussion on the floor that he would be responsible for supervising the Russian investigation. I'm glad you brought up that. Okay. That's and a great topic. He has topic. 30 years experience, and we had a number of senior prosecutors in the department involved in this process, both career and non-career. Yes, I've, 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 we're, I've we're read all the agreed process, on the sir. I have another question. And I'm glad you brought that subject up because I have a question about that. Earlier today, in response to Senator Graham, you said, quote, that you consulted with Rosenstein constantly, unquote, with respect to the special counsel's investigation and report. But Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein is also a key witness in the firing of FBI Director Comey. Did you consult? Well, that's with D I'm not finished. Yeah. Did you consult with DOJ ethics officials before you enlisted Rod Rosenstein to participate in a charging decision for an investigation, the subject of which he is also a witness? My understanding was that he had been cleared already to participate in it. By the so you had Senator. consulted with them and they cleared it? No, I think they cleared it when he, when he took over the investigation. Did you that's consult? That's my understanding. I, 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 
You don't know whether he's been cleared of a conflict of interest? He would be participating if there was a conflict of interest. So you're saying that it did not need to be reviewed by the career ethics officials in your office? I believe it was. I believe it was. Well, I believe it was reviewed. And I would also point out this seems to be a bit of a flip flop because when. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, we've, Vic Sean, you've got that clip of Maisie Hirono. It's, it's just an extraordinary moment here. Listen to this. Debar, now the American people know that you are no different from Rudy Giuliani or Kellyanne Conway or any of the other people who sacrificed their once decent reputation for the grifter and liar who sits in the Oval Office. You once turned down a job offer from Donald Trump to represent him as his private attorney. At your confirmation hearing, you told Senator Feinstein that, quote, the job of attorney general is not the same as representing, end quote, the president. So you know the difference, but you've chosen to be the president's lawyer and side with him over the interests of the American people. To start with, you should never have been involved. In- uh, it goes on from there. That's remarkable. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Kamala Harris is, oh, uh, she, I think she just wrapped, wrapped up. I have nothing else. My time is right out. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. That's uh, Kamala Harris. Mark in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind today? I haven't heard the whole hearings today. I've been off and on. But has any of the Democratic senators asked Barr why he's not going to allow uh, certain people to testify under, yes. his, under him? Yes, one of them, um, and I'm uh, forgive me for not remembering which one, but one of them got into a lengthy colloquy with him about it, or, or kind of debate with him, actually. How yep. did he defend that? I mean, that he wouldn't let someone else testify. It was about Don McGahn specifically, and he said he didn't, and whoever the senator was pointed out, Don McGahn is now a private citizen, and he was like, well, still, you know, this is, uh, you know, privileged information. He's asserting executive privilege. He's saying that if you served the president, if you served Trump, you know, in any capacity, then your conversations with Trump are absolutely privileged. And there is this thing called, you know, executive privilege or presidential privilege or whatever you want to call it. And it's real. But whether it can extend in particular to crimes, this is the thing. If there was an impeachment hearing going on, they could get around executive privilege. I'm pretty sure you can't assert executive privilege during an impeachment hearing. But, you know, but he already already waived that, too. I mean, uh, by meeting with Mueller. And in fact, that was another point that one of the senators made was that Don McGahn has already waived executive privilege by meeting with Mueller, so he can't assert it now. And Barr was like, no, I think I can assert it, so I'm going to go with it. So, you know. Do you think, uh, do you think uh, someone will uh, subpoena Trump to testify would shift for someone like that, subpoena Trump? And if so, would that be obstruction if he doesn't show up? I don't know. I'm pretty sure that Congress, if Congress were to subpoena the president, I don't think they can do that. I mean, they're co-equal branches of government. I don't think that they can subpoena the president any more than the president can demand that members of Congress, you know, come and answer to him. Wasn't Bill Clinton subpoenaed during the 90s for... uh, That was by Ken Starr, and that was was in this, the civil investigation of the, it started out with the Paula Jones lawsuit. And, you know, and... The president was subpoenaed, an active president was subpoenaed before Congress. Right, but he was subpoenaed by the Justice Department indirectly uh, through Ken Starr, I believe, not by Congress. 
Oh. So, you know, it's a different thing. I mean, you know, Ken Starr was, was, he was actually an independent counsel. That was when the independent counsel law was still around. So, again, it wasn't Congress. It was a, it was a separate body that had the ability. In fact, the, you know, the independent counsel laws were put together specifically so that somebody other than Congress could interrogate the president. So, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot to sort through here, Mark, and it's getting really, really yeah. interesting. Mark, thanks a lot for the call. Chris in Baldwin, New York. Hey, Chris, what's up? Hey, Tom, what's happening? It's always great to hear your voice and learn a lot listening to you. Thank so, you. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm not looking at this the right way, but to what extent is, are people not focusing or asking enough, why was the Trump campaign not obliged, responsible to at least report this contact from the Russians made to them to tamper in the election? You know, the conspiracy thing, you know, I definitely think they were guilty, but that's a different point. But right. even if they were found not to have conspired, what about the fact that they never reported it? I don't hear anybody pressing any of his talking heads or any of the pundits or even asking Barr. What yeah. was the president's responsibility to report this? Well, one of the Democrats earlier did ask Barr that, and Barr kind of punted on the question. And the point is that this was actually a crime. I mean, you know, the Mueller report concluded that, I believe the Internet Research Agency, that this Russian agency had actually committed crimes under the, you know, under the U.S. law and, and indicted a number of Russians for it. And so to have knowledge of a crime and not report it is a crime in and of itself. So uh, I think that Donald Trump Jr. in particular has a lot to answer for here. And I'm with you on this, Chris, that, you know, the first call, just like when, I mean, you know, this wasn't even the Russians, but when Al Gore was offered George W. Bush's uh, private briefing papers for his debates, and when Jimmy Carter was offered the private briefing, you know, when he was offered Reagan's uh, private briefing notes, in both cases, they turned it down and they called the FBI. In both cases. And then you get, you know, Donald Trump Jr. being offered, you know, help from the Russians. And he's like, oh, I love it. I mean, that's the verbatim quote. So, yeah, I think that there is an actionable thing here. The question is, you know, who's going to take that action? Right now it's up to Congress. But, uh, you know, we'll see. Oh, Patrick Leahy is back up. Chris, I got to run. Pat, Pat Leahy is up again. Let's uh, go back to the hearings. Had the requisite intent to commit obstruction of justice. Well, there are numerous reasons why somebody might interfere with investigations. Most critically, an interference may prevent the discovery of an underlying crime. Uh, so interfering, you might not know if there's a crime. But the special counsel did uncover evidence of underlying crimes here, including one that directly implicated the president. And didn't we learn due to the special counsel's investigation that Donald Trump is known as Individual One? in the Southern District of New York, directing hush payments as part of a criminal scheme to violate campaign finance laws. That matter was discovered by a special counsel referred to the Southern District of New York. Is that correct? Yes. Thank you. The Mueller report references a dozen ongoing investigations stemming from the special counsel's investigation. Will you commit that you will not interfere with the dozen ongoing investigations. I, I will supervise those investigations as attorney general. We let them reach natural conclusions without interference from the White House. Let me put it that way, then. Yes. Thank you. Did, did you yeah. I, as I said when I was up for confirmation, uh, part of my responsibility is to make sure there is no political interference in cases. Well, and you've testified a number of things, and that's why I'm, I'm double-checking. Uh, you 
In the Appropriations Committee, I asked you whether Mr. Mueller expressed any expectation or interest in leaving the obstruction decision to Congress, and you testified he didn't say that to you. Actually, as you said, he did, didn't say that to me. Right. But then he has numerous references in his report to Congress playing a role in deciding whether the president committed obstruction of justice. So I know you testified many times, but that well, testimony was not correct. That's not correct. I, I think it is correct. I mean, I don't, he, he has not said that he conducted the investigation in order to turn it over to Congress. That would be very inappropriate. That's not what the Justice Department well, does. He, he included numerous references report to Congress playing a role um, in it. Volume 2, page 8, inclusion that Congress may apply the obstruction laws to the President's corrupt exercise of the powers of office in accordance with our constitutional system of justice. Uh, yeah, I don't think Bob, Bob Mueller was suggesting that, that uh, the next step here was for him to turn this stuff over for, to Congress to act upon. That's not why we conduct grand jury investigations. And President Trump, I am correct in my earlier statement, uh, never allowed anybody to interview him directly under oath. Is that correct? I think that's correct. Even though he said he was ready to testify. Thank you. Well, could I? Sure. A point, a point you raised about the absence of a um, uh, underlying crime. One point I was trying to make earlier is uh, the absence of an underlying crime doesn't necessarily mean that there were, that there would be other motives for obstruction, although it gets a little bit harder to prove and more speculative as to what those motives might be. But the point I was trying to make earlier is that in the situation of the president, who has constitutional authority to supervise proceedings, if in fact a proceeding was not well-founded, if it was a groundless proceeding, if it was based on false allegations, uh, the president does not have to sit there constitutionally and allow it to run its course. The president could terminate that proceeding and it would not be a corrupt intent because he was being falsely accused and he would be worried about the impact on his administration. That's important because most of the obstruction uh, claims that are being made here or, or episodes do involve the exercise of the president's constitutional authority, and we now know that he was being falsely accused. Amazing. Uh, Bill Barr spinning and lying and committing obstruction of justice right in front of our eyes under oath before the United States Senate. Um, this guy really deserves the John Mitchell treatment. John Mitchell, by the way, got 19 months in prison for obstructing justice when he was Richard Nixon's attorney general, if you're, if you're not familiar with the name. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. And we'll see if Bill Barr is going to testify before the House or not. I have a feeling after the uh, shellacking he got today in the Senate, he won't. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.